Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 164. And today in the show, we are joined again by outdoor writer and Illinois bow hunter Don Higgins, and we're discussing in detail his plans and tactics this year for targeting two potential 200 class bucks. Okay, so real quick before we get into the show, I want to put a little disclaimer in here, or maybe we'll call it an explainer, I don't know. But here's the thing, as you're going to hear in a little bit, a big part of our discussion today is about one man's goal and plans for trying to kill a 200-inch buck this year. And before we get into this conversation, in which we do talk a lot about big antlers and high-scoring bucks, I just want to preface this whole deal by offering a bit of opinion my opinion. And it's that I think we should all be careful to remember that inches aren't everything. You know, it is easy to get caught up in the whole antler craze and scoring bucks. Um, But if you go too far down that path, or if you go there too soon, I think there's a real risk of lessening your enjoyment of the hunt, or devaluing or disrespecting in some ways the animals that you hunt, or losing sight of some of the other very important aspects of hunting. Now, I'm not trying to say there's anything wrong with scoring deer or getting excited about the score of a buck or setting your own personal goals for deer hunting by using score in some way. That's all well and good, and I do that sometimes too. I'm more so cautioning everyone just not to get too caught up in what everyone else is doing or what other people are targeting or what other people are shooting. And I also don't want us to forget the other aspects of deer and hunting outside of antlers. Yes, big antlers are beautiful, they are rare, they are just plain cool. I dig them just as much as the next guy, but we need to be careful not to go too far sometimes on that front. Now as we get into today's conversation, you're going to hear us dig into these very thoughts in more detail with Don, and I think he does a really nice job of explaining his own unique perspective on this too. But I just want to make sure these ideas are mentioned right at the top as well, not an hour later, because I just want you to keep this in the back of your mind as we continue through this conversation. Antlers are great and fun and a cool way to set personal goals. But meat and challenge and experience and camaraderie and new places and new memories, those are great and fun and very, very important as well. So with all that said, uh, I will kick it back to our regularly scheduled programming now, and we do have a pretty long intro today, FYI, somewhere around 30 minutes. So if you're new to the show, you are welcome to skip that and move right into our interview with Don and and deer hunting tactics and all the good stuff we'll be talking about. But be warned, if you do that, you'll be missing out on some very interesting news. So here goes. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today we are joined by Don Higgins, an outdoor writer, an avid Illinois bow hunter, and a three-time past podcast guest here. So today, Don's going to discuss with us two pretty interesting topics. First, we're going to talk a little bit about EHD, which is a disease that 
many of us fear in the late summer and early fall and it's starting to pop up across the country and Don has got his his irons in the fire related to that a little bit so we're going to chat about that with Don and then secondly Don has got a potential 200 class buck in his sights for this year so we're going to dive deep into the story of that buck his plans his tactics his strategies Everything he's hoping to do, planning on doing this season after that buck, that's what we want to break down. Try to hopefully pick his whole game plan apart and see what we can learn from that. So I'm looking forward to that. I think that's going to be really interesting. But before we bring Don on, Dan Johnson, Mr. Co-host. Yes, sir. How we doing, Mr. Host? I'm doing good. And I don't know if you remember, but last week, in last week's episode, I kicked off the episode by telling you I had some big news to share. Yep. Yep. Right? Right. I have bigger news to share today. Uh-oh. Like, is it, g- like, g- good news or bad news? Depends on your perspective. Based on how you talk about this thing over the past few years, some might say bad. But, uh, Dan, Are you I'm, serious? I'm joining Are you the, serious? I'm joining the club. No we're, shit! We're going to have a baby. No shit! <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations. My- <laughs> Holy shit! <Mark. laughs> yeah. I thought this would be something that I might may have been prepared for, but no, this is first time hearing of this. Yeah, I had to make sure you got the full effect. <laughs> oh, wow. Holy yeah, man. cow. Congratulations, man. Um, <laughs> Thank you, buddy. Yeah. So, so now you know where babies come from. Now, now we know where they come from. It was a big surprise, but we figured it out. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, pretty oh, pretty you're crazy. You're going to hate it and love it at the same time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I so I hear. Yeah, it's going to be uh she's a little over 3 months along. So uh Ooh. it's going to be a February baby. That's good timing. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so. It'll it'll, you know, be a little bit of shed hunting impact maybe, but I can I can handle that. Yeah, absolutely. So So here's the question. Like have you known for a while or did she just spring it on you? Yeah, I've known since May. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we've known, we've just been keeping it quiet, you know. They say to wait till after like the you pass the first trimester to make sure that uh things are going okay. So so far so good and um yeah, we're 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 ready to to talk about it now. So. Wow, that's awesome, dude. Uh, now on a serious note here. I, I bitch about my kids and, you know, complain them, but it's all for good fun. I mean, you're going to absolutely love whatever it is. Like, do you know if it's going to be a boy or a girl? We don't know yet. We are probably going to find out, but uh, they're, okay. they're not going to do an ultrasound until uh, later in September. So probably when I get back from all my hunting trips, we'll, uh, we'll be yep. able to go do that. I tell you what, man, it's a blast. I mean, yeah, it, it's stressful at times, but it, having having a kid changes your life for the better, I feel. Yeah. It's funny, you know, like you said, you jokingly complain about it a lot, but at the same time, like, when I get to hear about you, you know, shooting your bow with Mac or taking Ava fishing or doing all these different things, like, that just, like, gets me so excited to, to someday yeah. be able to do that. So I just can't wait to, like, share these things that I love so much with uh with whatever this little rug, rug rat turns out to be, so Heck yeah, yeah, it's nuts. It's 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 crazy, but um, but yeah, it was cool. We um, oh, we had a doctor's appointment back before we left for our western trip, some point this summer, right? And um, we went in there. I think it was our first doctor's appointment, and they said 
you know, we're going to check for heart sounds, but it's so early, we're most likely not going to hear anything, so don't worry. Um, right. But we'll just check just in case since you're here. So I was right. like, ah, oh, we're not going to hear anything. But, you know, like early on, like all these like nerves, like you're afraid. I don't know. There's right. like nerves. Like is it is this real? Is yep. things going okay? So they put this like thing on Kylie's belly and we're moving her around. And all I could hear were just like these weird like gurgling stomach sounds and stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, we're not going to hear anything. And then, like, she did it for, like, 30 seconds, just moving it around and adjusting something on the little device. And then all of a sudden, like, out of nowhere, thump, 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 yep. thump, thump. And that was, like, it was really, really cool. Like, I, it was, like, wow, there is yeah. a little living thing growing there that was uh, right. pretty wild. It's, it's just all very, it's wild. Lots of changes. Right. I heard the first with, with my daughter. Uh it didn't really hit me when I heard her heart beat for the first time, but the first ultrasound where I could hear it and see it and see that it was, you know, this little human is growing inside my wife. I was just like, I don't know. It's life changing for me. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was, it was literally, I have to now become a better person oh, type yeah. of thing, you know? So Yeah. Congrats. <laughs> like, it's like I could sit here and talk to you about, you know, it's like I'm, I know Don has a 200 incher on his line, but I almost feel like we should make this a, a, a 100% parenting episode. <laughs> well, I, that's why I told you we had to get on early today because I knew you'd want to, we'd want to talk about this. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, man. That's nuts. Yeah. So, uh, it's it's yeah it's gonna be my last hunting season without a child Mm -hmm. so uh it's good that i'm going big this year right that's right but uh yeah so now you're not going to have exclusive rights to complaining about kids and talking parenting (laughs) on the podcast (laughs) it's kind of funny my boss uh my boss uh says to me today he goes I, f- I said, I feel like every year I'm, I'm hunting less and less and less. He's like, don't worry. In 18 years, you'll be freed up again. And <laughs> I'm just like, he's right, but that's almost like an insult. That's a long time. <laughs> that's a, yeah, it's like it's like a prison sentence. <laughs> hey, don't worry. You'll be out someday. <laughs> oh, man. The key is you just got to get them into it early, right? As soon as, as soon as they start going to the tree with you, then you're set. Right, and then I can tell the yeah I'm taking I'm taking so and so with me. We'll be back at dark. Exactly, exactly. Right, I'm just right. gonna I'm gonna hopefully like by age two or less, little little Kenyon's gonna be in the woods with me. Hopefully, so. <laughs> oh so check, man, check this out, right? Kind of mixing it up with how you're currently living out west. You know, you got that camper. Yeah, you got that. Um, uh this lifestyle, which I'm sure you're going to involve your child in, right? You're going to get, you know, probably, I mean, you can still go do that with, with a kid, maybe not the, uh, long overnight hikes in grizzly bear country, but, but my wife comes up to me the other day and she's like, man, I really want to raise our, you know, have our kids outside more. And I think we should like live kind of like, and you know, more of an outdoor lifestyle and, she nice. so she wants to start looking at campers. All right. So I have a I have like four pamphlets on my desk here of like a variety of campers uh with you know that would sleep five five people. So 
I cannot that imagine. Something. I cannot imagine how fast you jumped on that. Probably within seconds of her saying it, and you're like, "Yep, all right, I'm shopping. Let's go." <laughs> no, no, she brought that up, and I think this weekend, and we because we went to the Iowa State Fair last weekend, and they at the Iowa State Fair they had a whole bunch of trailers you could look at, travel trailers you could look at. So we've gone to two dealers. We looked at the travel tra- trailer, so it was like in in one week we've already done a lot of shopping. Uh, now who knows if? We're, yeah, exactly. And I'm just like, let's do it because I'm yeah. all about that stuff. Oh, I know. And I know we we've even talked about the same thing, like how you know what's how do you help make this more comfortable and appealing to the rest of your family and stuff. And that's awesome that she's that she brought this to you. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I'm wearing on her. That's good. You know, it's, <laughs> I don't know if it's one of those things where. Okay, this ought to shut him up. Yeah. Or if she actually <laughs> likes it. Right. Well, either way, don't don't ask questions, Dan. Just go with it. Exactly. Nod and smile. Best advice my dad ever gave uh-huh. me. That's awesome, though. Well, uh, one of these summers, we'll have to you'll have to bring the whole family on out, and we can we can meet up out here. Heck yeah. So wait, when is so when's the due date? I think it's it's somewhere early to mid February. They haven't so, like, given us an official due date yet, but like you know, doing the math—that's when it should be somewhere on there. So our kids are literally going to be like four or five months apart only. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, your most recent one—the one coming up here. That's right. Could be hunting oh. buddies. Oh boy, we we there there could be some competition. <laughs> that could be our competition, actually. Or instead of doing a trail camera bet, we do a child bet. <laughs> Who's going to kill the first deer? <laughs> No, a, a child bet where, uh, okay, you have to babysit my kids oh. while me and the wife go out. <laughs> okay. Or I have to take care of your kid while you and the wife go out. All so. right. Yeah, and so so if you lose, you have to drive six hours to come babysit. <laughs> <laughs> High stakes. I like it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but I don't know, dude. That's awesome. It's just I, I'm sure your wife is all excited, and she's already talking about – names and you know if it's going to be a boy or if it's going to be a girl you know women do all that stuff guys really don't care too much but i've been i've been thinking about it all too you know it's uh it's yeah just just lots and lots to think about you know i don't know i don't know how to plan for this i don't know how to do this but um figuring out as we go and uh you know i think we're Kylie's, you know, had a lot of the same challenges that a lot of women, I think, have. Like, early trimester, she was sick for a while, and now she's just, like, super fatigued. Um, so, like, we've, we've still done some backpacking trips. We've doing been doing hikes and stuff, but we've been trying to keep it pretty chill. Like, we did yeah. a backpacking trip this past weekend in Yellowstone, but I picked one specifically that would be, like, almost no elevation gain. We just stayed in, like, a river valley the whole time. Yeah. Um, so she can do that stuff, but she's been struggling at high elevation. We've had two different nights where we tried to just camp um, above 8,000 feet, which like, isn't that high out here. Uh, but yeah. both times, like in the middle of the night, she was like getting like uh, struggles, like breathing and stuff. Yeah. So like right away, like as soon as she started feeling, it, I was like, all right, we don't let's just let's just turn around and go down the hill. Um, yeah. So we did that, but you know, talking to doctors and everything, they said everything should be fine out here. Just listen to your body. So that's what right. that's what we've been doing and so far so good um but yeah it's been it's been a little different but to your point earlier we're definitely still planning on you know continuing to live the lifestyle we are and just incorporate you know incorporate the little one into it and and yeah it's Absolutely. gonna it's gonna be a little bit different um but i'm uh now 
obviously I've never parented before, so I have no idea. But from an outside perspective looking in, I feel like you don't have to let the child completely change your life. You can incorporate a child into your life and, and make it a part of that. And so that's what we're hoping to do is is yep. to, you know, this isn't the end of our life in any way. This is just the beginning, <laughs> beginning of a new phase and bringing in an, right. awesome, an awesome new uh, friend into the mix. So, You're getting company. Exactly, which will be good because I'm tired of talking to Kylie all the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> It's like after – okay, how many years have you guys been married? Uh, this will be four years, I think, coming up this September. Right. So like after a certain period of time, there's not really much to talk to your wife about anyway. Right. <laughs> uh, so you need a kid so that the conversation stays fresh. <laughs> yep. So I got, I got about 18 years of, of easy riding ahead of me now. <laughs> and then after that, that's I got, right. then I got to think about new conversation starters. <laughs> that's right. Well, at that age, your wife won't care about you anyway. So yeah, just, just, you just know. leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. As long as the bills are paid, it's all good. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, man. We'll have a lot of interesting things to share uh, as this whole process goes through, but we'll definitely need to talk more uh, in future episodes or, or off air to get some parenting advice and all that. Right. Um, I got a I got a quick question for you. Yeah. Run this run this by your wife though. If I shoot for some reason shoot a two hundred inch buck, and I'm talking measured out, not net, but gross. <laughs> if I shoot a gross. 200 inch buck this year can i name your child <laughs> you know it's it's fine by me um you <laughs> but you're right you'd have to run it by kylie <laughs> dallas fort kenyon yeah <laughs> that's got a nice ring to it <laughs> i know no oh gosh yeah it's gonna be an interesting interesting journey ahead of us that's for sure all right so as we often do right uh we we've talked enough about kids. First off, congratulations. Thank right? you. Yes, enough about kids. Okay. Right now, I saw some videos online. Right. Yeah. Uh, went on a little scouting mission uh, recently, and yeah. I, dude, I'm I'm assuming that for Montana, what you saw was a really good night of glassing. Yeah, they were nice bucks. Um, you know, lot, I mean, in more than just the video, I mean, I saw so many deer. So many deer, so many bucks. Like in one little clip, I've got like 15 different bucks in one shot, and like three or four or five of them are all like pretty darn nice. Um, right. So yeah, it was fun. Saw tons of deer, some nice bucks. There was one buck already hardhorned that I saw. Oh, really? Yeah, completely shed of velvet. So that was really surprising to see. So question then, with Montana having such a high population of deer you know i mean it sounds to me like out there in certain pockets and spots i mean i I've, I've talked with guys who are saying you know it's easy to see 50 to 100 deer in an al- a big alfalfa field yeah right def- definitely so with that is there also a higher age class yeah it's 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 much better now i don't know how it would compare to iowa but compared to right. michigan much much better age structure because i think there's just there's so little pressure on these deer compared to back in the Midwest and the East white tails out here. Just, they're not, people aren't very interested in them. So most of these deer just aren't getting hunted at all. All the hunting is being done up in the mountains for muleys and elk and all that good stuff. Um, the white tails are just kind of like the, the vermin of the West that kind of bump around in the river bottoms and stuff. And people just pass them on by. So, so yeah, I mean, you see lots of old bucks, 
Okay. So that there's an age structure there that, you know, they just don't have the, cause for me, it's almost like it's, it's staggered. There's a lot. So one year olds, there's even, I mean, there's, then there's just a little bit less two years old, two year olds. There's a little bit less three year olds. Uh, there's a, you know, there's a, just a, a handful of four-year-olds. And then from there, it gets very rare, right? You may have two or three. I'm, and I'm talking about my farm. So, you know, like this year, I think I have five, maybe five deer that are going to be so far, you know, this is based off my last trail camera ch- check, like five, five or six deer that are four-year-old or older, right? When I have probably 10, 15 deer that are in the one, two, and you know, one and two year olds and maybe 15 that are in the, the three year old range. Yeah. So out there, is there a, is it even like there's 10, 10, one year olds, 10, two year olds, 10, three year olds, 10, four year olds, or does it also kind of get staggered off as you get to the older age classes? You know, I, 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 it's hard to say. I just haven't been able to study it close enough, you know, and and looked at pictures and seen deer for years and years. Um, I would guess it still declines a little bit simply because there are there are still mortality factors that make it you know difficult right. more difficult for bucks to make it to six than it is to make it to one, but I think right. it's it's more even than a lot of places not perfectly gotcha. but more so at least um, dramatically more so than Michigan or Pennsylvania or Georgia or South Carolina, um, but but maybe not too much different than Iowa or Kansas, um, but just the number the sheer number of deer makes it so you just see a lot more of these but i mean it just seems like i see just in driving around or when i was out hunting there's a lot of deer that looked like they could be you know four five six years old um from first glance so now i mean when it comes to like you know antlers you're not seeing a bunch like 160s or anything um but i mean you know lots of nice bucks especially for a michigan guy like me like when i see a 130 class buck or 140 class buck i'm pumped about that um or any mature buck really so i mean you see you see a nice number of those types of deer so last night i mean just a whole bunch of really good looking bucks that just got me pretty fired up so that was fun Um, what was the biggest one you thought you saw from an antlers uh there was probably like high 130s maybe somewhere around there There there's a 10 pointer there was maybe maybe 140 um, okay. And then like t- tons of eight pointers. There's a lot of big eight pointers that were probably like 130 class eight pointers. Um, That's good. But like a lot of them. Um, like in one field, like there was two big alfalfa fields, and there was a road in the middle, like a main highway in the middle. And these deer were coming off the hills, coming into the one field, crossing the road, crossing the highway basically, and going into this other field. So on either side of me, like the herd was kind of split up. I would say on the left side there was probably five bucks that would be in that class and on the right side there was probably another four or five bucks in that class um plus god ungodly number of does and fawns and young bucks and stuff so it's just fun it's just fun to see deer like that right. so what other species are you are you find like seeing are you, i mean are you seeing mule deer or moose or elk or antelope while you're out doing these drives as well so it depends on where you're at where i'm at right now i'm down in uh a, a a big river valley so just muleys antelope and whitetails okay um, but there's definitely other places where i've been where i have seen moose while out moose and elk while doing these drives um, i'm sure i could see some elk if i went a little bit up into the mountains a little bit more not even in the mountains still in the hills a little bit because yeah. um, they, they definitely are down in the valleys right now too um 
but yeah, this is my first deer drive while I've been out here. So I'm, I'm going to go out here in the next few nights and unfortunately these aren't deer I could hunt. This isn't, we're oh, camping, okay. we're camping in a different place than where I'm going to be able to hunt. Where I'm hunting is still kind of far away, but it, and this is just for fun. This is just for fun. Yeah. Perfect. So that said from, from everything I've seen and, and, and know about these two other areas I'll be hunting, the one that I hunted last year and the other spot that's new, it should be pretty comparable to this. So, right. oh, um, man. Speaking of bucks, yeah, I uh, I got my Ohio trail camera pictures checked finally. I know, you sent me a couple of them, and yeah. I'm uh, that that one. Did you post a picture of that one yet that you sent me? I posted a picture of one of them, the really big like eight pointer. Okay, yeah, the picture that you sent me, I th- I think it's the same buck. <laughs> Look, like the one that I told you, he looks like he's thirty inches wide. Yeah, like he yeah. just looks really really wide. I, that to me is like, I don't care really about too much about numbers like, oh, that's a booner or whatnot, but that buck is huge and just looks cool character wise. Oh yeah. He's a, he's a stud. There's a, he's probably the best buck that we have on camera. Um, and we, I actually looked through pictures. We have him last year too. Um, but he was a buck that we never really saw during the season. We never actually saw him in person, but we did get pictures of him a couple times during the season, a lot in the summer. Um, so he could be around. There's another buck um, that's a nice 10-pointer, a little smaller than this one, but still pretty nice. He was on camera a lot last year. Um, but none of the bucks like that we knew that we had named and that we'd seen in past years, I don't have any of those bucks back. Um, yeah. But I've got... Mm, like four or five different for sure nice mature bucks um you know from like 140 to 160 or somewhere around there um so so yeah some good ones uh there's a really cool really big seven pointer actually um not you know not that it matters not gonna score all that well but super mature and just a cool looking buck so that's cool um and you just never know what shows up throughout the season. So, so long story short, it's nice bucks. It's good to see there will be some good prospects this year. I, not, I didn't see my booner that uh, <laughs> the booner before thirty. I don't think there's one of those on camera yet. But there, there always is a chance in that neighborhood. So that's right. I uh, when when you sent me that, I, I was starting to think about your property, and because earlier this year, and even into late last year you guys didn't have too much for you know bucks that would stand out right and you didn't have too many of an older age class on that farm well we we have pictures of them we just weren't seeing them oh okay so nocturnal yeah a lot of nocturnal activity um now when i went back the thing is you know we, we just didn't get down there very often so we hunted it opening weekend last year and then we didn't go back down till the rut and then we hunted for like our week during the rut and then I filled my tag so I didn't go back the whole season. Josh just went back I think just one time. Um so we weren't checking cameras all that often. Um yeah. but now that we've you know, I've looked through all the pictures and stuff, there's still a lot of nice old bucks that were coming through there, but but yes, most of it was dark. Um and you know, like we've talked about in the past, it's just like you have a lot of really, really slow days. And then yeah. every once in a while though you'll have a giant come through. Right. Is there a is there a a doe group that calls that property home? There is. There's at least two. There's two pretty good doe bedding areas where there's always a family group on that property. So so yeah. 
there's at least that. No. Okay. Cool. Well, yeah, at least you got some uh, perspective or uh, some whatever that word is. Prospects. <laughs> prospects. Yes. There we go. I'm an idiot. <laughs> we've got we got prospects. So that's right. And yeah, like I talked about last week, you know, I think I'm just gonna take it easy there, wait it out, and see what I can see. Um, and who knows? You never know what can show up down there. But I, you know, even though I. You know, last year I, or last week I kiddingly talked. It would be, you know, I want to shoot a booner this year. Um, if one of these really big mature bucks comes by, you know, it's it's pretty darn hard to pass on a deer like that because that's yeah. that's a great buck and they don't they don't come by easily. So, right. So yeah, if uh, I'll send you these other pics, a couple other pics. I just Josh has been uploading them up to like a up into the cloud. And I've just been yeah. paging through them today, so I just got finally got to look at a lot of these. So I'll send you a few more, and I'll, I'll post some stuff online too for people to see. We got to name these bucks though, because these aren't bucks that I've, um, you know, we've not really seriously followed them in the past. So we haven't named them. Yeah. We don't really know them too well. But but I do have some pictures I can look back at now and start to try to figure them out a little bit. So the fun will begin. Oh. Boner City too. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Do you cringe every time I open my mouth? Like <laughs> just a, a tiny bit in my heart like skips. I'm like, oh gosh, what now? <laughs> Why do I keep this guy around? <laughs> oh man. You make me laugh, Mr. Johnson. I will give you that. Well, we uh we need to we need to shut this sucker down real quick because we gotta get Don on the line with us here. So um, no more baby talk, no more Ohio buck talk. It's time to talk to Don about some giant Illinois bucks. So let's take a break for our Sitka story, and then we'll get Don Higgins on the line. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Montana Wild's Zach Botton, who tells us about a memorable high country mule deer hunt where he tagged out in the last week of the season. One of my favorite hunting moments was a couple falls ago, last week of season, we were trying to find big mature mule deer buck and we went back to a spot that I just kind of had a gut feeling was going to produce, had never seen a big buck in the area and got there early. Temperatures were dipping down just below zero and we just slowly started climbing the mountain, trying to hike slow so you don't get too sweaty. Definitely glad we had the right layers for that day and got up on the mountain and and made a decision to keep going. I had thought about going back down the mountain, uh, hadn't seen a lot of game. And next thing you know, we come through the timber, look up on the hillside and here is just a big four point mule deer buck. Exactly what I was looking for. Got down the buck had no clue. I was there, put it behind his shoulder and squeeze the trigger. And that was the end of it. And Walking up on that buck was probably four or five years worth of time spent in the mountains to try to find that buck, and it was super rewarding. That's probably one of my favorite moments from the last couple of years. Super demanding hunt and spent a lot of time on the mountain looking for a buck of a certain size and maturity that we honestly had never laid eyes on before I filled my tag. On Zach's hunt, he was wearing Sitka's Timberline pants and Traverse hoodie. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit SitkaGear.com. All right, we are back now with Don Higgins. Welcome back to the show, Don. Well, thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. We, uh, you might be our first four-time guest, so you are in 
well, you are in rare company because I think you're the only one there. So <laughs> we uh, we have enjoyed well, chatting with you in the past, that's for sure. I live at the bottom of the barrel, so if you're always scraping the bottom of the barrel, you're going to find me. <laughs> you, should, you should at least get him a gift basket yeah. for being a four-timer. <laughs> that's the least we could do, right? <laughs> well, well, Don, other than scraping the bottom of the barrel in life, how, how are things going for you this summer? Oh, fantastic. I've waited 13 years to, to have another 200-inch buck to hunt. And I may actually have two this year to go after. Uh, one of the bucks is definitely over 200. And the other one, I haven't got a real good picture of him yet, although I do have several pictures, but he's always at a distance. And I know he's bigger than last year, and last year he was in the 180s. So, you know, there's a good chance that he could hit 200 as well. Wow. And then real-world wildlife products has just exploded in the last year or so. So, uh, you know, things are going fantastic there as well. That uh, yeah, I'd say that's pretty good. Two two hundred inch bucks. <laughs> that's and that's that is one of the things we want to talk to you about today because you'd mentioned that to me earlier this a little earlier this summer. And my my game plan here, Don, in a little bit is to try to grill you in as much detail as possible to understand how exactly you're going to hunt those deer, that deer or both of them. Um, but you mentioned okay. you mentioned uh, uh, real life, real. I'm going to get my words all mixed here. You mentioned something. <laughs> that I want to make sure we touch on because with your company you have some things going on related to some concerns that people are talking about right now related to EHD and Mm -hmm. there have been reports of EHD popping up already this summer that I've seen uh, in Kentucky and Pennsylvania and and Dan you've been hearing about some stuff in southern Iowa right? Yep, some rumblings. I uh, I talked with a, a guy earlier today, and there's no EHD on his farm as of now, but he had it real bad the last time there was an outbreak. Yeah, so so what are you hearing on that front down around by you? Any reports of EHD yet? Well, I've only heard a couple here in Illinois, but Kentucky seems to be getting hit pretty hard at the moment. And, you know, EHD typically starts in the southern states, and I know for a fact they were having it, uh, you know, like down in Texas, Oklahoma uh, in June, and it's just, it slowly moved north as the summers wore on. So it's around. I'm sure that, uh, you know, we've got probably, what, two months before we have a, at least a month and a half before we have a frost, probably to imagine that. So um, I'm sure we haven't heard the worst of them. It's just getting fired up here in the Midwest. Right, right. It, it does seem that usually it's it's a little bit later in the summer, or early fall, when you start hearing about the worst of it. Um, is EHD something done that you can for people that aren't familiar with the disease that you can speak to a little bit of the basics about? You know, if if someone hasn't already heard about exactly what this is, could you fill fill them in? Yeah, I'm certainly no expert on EHD, but EHD is a virus uh, that's usually fatal to whitetails. Uh, it's spread by a, a biting midge gnat. Um, it's worse in, on hot, dry years and drought years. The midge gnat uh, breeds in the mud along uh, the shores of water, uh, especially stagnant water, uh, you know, on pond banks and such. And in dry years, as these water sources dry up, um, the deer concentrate around the remaining water and and it's just the perfect breeding grounds for the midge gnat that carries this virus. So that, that's why it's worse on those years. It's almost always fatal, but, but not 100% of the time. But 
the thing it is, a lot of the deer that, that do survive are, are left uh, in pretty poor shape and later succumb to other issues such as pneumonia or things like that. So uh, in 2012, when we had the, the worst drought that I can remember in my 50-plus years, uh, we had a, a terrible EHD outbreak in the Midwest. Um, and in my area locally, it just about wiped out the deer herd. We literally had less than 25% of what we had the year before uh, as far as the deer herd. And it's made a comeback in the five years since, but it still is not to the level it was before that EHD outbreak. So the worst thing we need now is another setback uh, before the herd is fully recovered around here. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I feel like so many people across the Midwest – experienced that tough 2012 i know by me in michigan it was really bad i know some properties where people found you know 30 40 50 dead deer on their properties um some of my really good friends their their places were just decimated and they're still like you said still kind of recovering now um i know some spots not too far from you dan south central iowa a lot of those places down there got hit really hard i mean to your point don i don't think anyone wants to have another setback like that so Fingers right. crossed. I, I don't know. I checked this last week. I haven't checked since last week. But, um, you know, you can go online and you can see the drought monitor map for the whole country and where the worst drought is and stuff. And I did see that there is uh-huh. some very serious drought in south central Iowa and then um, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, that section of the country, there's some very significant drought. Um, it's not quite as bad uh, to the to the northeast or the southeast as it has been in some past years, but there's definitely some pockets mm-hmm. where you could see that happening. So I know there's a lot of people concerned, especially now. You know, I saw some people posting videos from Iowa with some bucks that looked like they might have it. They were just kind of walking around in the middle of the road um, in bad shape, and uh, you definitely don't want to see that. Right. Yeah, because once it hits, you know, it's here, you're in the area until the frost kills that midge mat. It can just totally wipe out the herds in small localized areas. Right, right. And so, I mean, after 2012, I feel like so many people were talking about EHD because of what a significant impact it made. Um, everyone's been talking, you know, how, how can we, you know, what can we do about it? You know, how can we as hunters try to prevent it? Um, and up until this point, I haven't really heard of anything that can really be done to to try to deal with it. I know, um, you know, Mark Drury talked to me uh, earlier this summer about the fact that he was concerned about EHG up by him. And so his idea, him and I think Grant Woods had talked about it, an idea they had was to try to, you know, to try to deal with the implications of drought. They put out a bunch of water tanks, like all over their properties, water everywhere, to try to reduce that, you know, congregating effect that you mentioned where all the deer mm-hmm. go to the few limited places of water and then that's also where these midges are breeding so one idea he had right. was to try to put out, uh, put out supplemental water sources everywhere to try to minimize that I don't really know how that's worked mm-hmm. out for him since but that was one idea I'd heard of um, but I know that you with your company you've been kind of looking into and possibly have something that can help with this too um i'm curious to learn more about it because i don't know much about it yet um i'd love to hear what you guys have been working on and and how you think it may may be able to help yeah it's a product we call expect healthy deer technology and we at real world did not come up with with this uh product in fact it's kind of an interesting story we had a, a a seed customer in iowa that's been loyal uh, to our brand for several years and then two years ago 
oh, maybe it was a little longer than that, three years ago maybe, we came out with a, a deer mineral. And, uh, you know, we did an email blast promoting this deer mineral. And, and this customer from Iowa contacts us and says, hey, I, I love your seed and I'm going to continue to buy your seed, but I'm not going to buy your mineral because I've been getting a, this deer mineral I really like from this uh, livestock nutritionist in Missouri. And he says, you really need to, to meet this guy because he's came up with something to combat EHD. And we, you really need to meet him. And I just kind of blew it off. And this customer kept calling, you know, every couple months or so. Have you met the guy yet? I, I gave you his number. Did you call him? No, we haven't. And, you know, I, I, I was very skeptical and just kind of blew it off as nothing. And he was talking to the uh, nutritionist as well, telling him, you need to meet these guys from real world. And I bet they can market your product for you. And he was just blowing the guy off too, you know. And finally, out of more out of... Uh, to our customer we met with a nutritionist and you know he he gave us the uh, spiel about what he had done he, and actually in 2012 his area in northern missouri was hit really hard with ehd and that fall you know he was hunting and seeing almost no deer and he was just contemplating as he was sitting in a stand with nothing else to do because there was no deer walking by he, he was contemplating how he could leverage his knowledge of livestock nutrition to possibly combat EHD in whitetails. And he started experimenting, and he had a buddy down the road that, that raises captive deer, and uh, he would experiment uh, with some of his mm -hmm. concoctions on that guy's herd and, and expanded a little bit. And by the time we finally met with him and, and uh, through a series of meetings, we ended up getting the marketing rights to it. Um, he pretty much had the formula perfected to that point. And But we told him when we signed the marketing agreement that we was not taking it to market just based on his word. Not that we didn't trust him, but, you know, we wasn't going to put our reputation on the line until we had uh, done some testing of our own. And so we set up some captive herd, some tests in captive herds last year in 10 different states, you know, from Oklahoma, Nebraska, Kansas, up through Missouri, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, through the Midwest and into the South a little bit. And uh, we tested about, it was on about a thousand captive deer in those 10 states and various herds. And not a single deer was lost to EHD uh, last fall in those herds that was getting it. And, but the thing of it was, you know, we wasn't sure if they would have been lost even uh, if they were not fed the product because we didn't know if the herd, you know, had been infected. Last year wasn't a real bad year for EHD. Mm-hmm. So this year we really expanded the testing, and I mean we've got it. Uh, there's probably ten thousand captive deer right now on the product. Now we went down to my partner and I flew to Dallas, Texas, back in April at a uh, big deer farmers or deer breeders event down there uh, to talk with people and get some product. Uh, the Texas Deer Breeders Co-op got on board with us uh, to help us test it, and. To make a long story short, you know, I was extremely skeptical at first. And in fact, there was nobody more skeptical than me. I was so so skeptical that I didn't even contact the the uh, nutritionist who developed it uh, for months and months after hearing them. But I'm telling you what, the reports we're getting this summer just totally blow away even my expectations or or hopes for the product. It, it we're it's being fed right now into herds that already had EHD. They were already, you know, dragging dead deer out of the pens before they ever started on this product. And the phone is literally ringing off the hook now from 
captive deer breeders that, that are wanting to get their hands on this stuff. And, you know, we probably ship two semi loads of this stuff and, and it's used like a hundred pounds of it in a ton of deer feed. So it's pretty concentrated. And we've sent like two semi loads of this stuff just to Texas. <laughs> and we've also got an Oklahoma. We got it all the way across the South to Florida. There's a test being done at the university of Florida on it. Um, and it's just kind of snowballed. We did a, we commissioned a test at the university of Minnesota earlier in the year and one of the leading virologists in the country uh, tested the product in the lab and found that there was two ingredients in the product that that killed the live EHD virus within two hours in the lab. Now how that translates into live deer we don't know but but I can tell you I was a little bit I was pretty excited about that and that's what really got people's attention but that is nothing compared to what's happening in these deer pens right now. Um, last week, for example, that I had a, a guy from Alabama call, and he was so excited. He said, "You guys don't understand what you've got here. You better, you better buy a bigger mill to make this stuff because you've just cured cancer in whitetails." <laughs> and I, I want to stress that's his words, not mine. Uh, but, but we are extremely excited about what we're hearing just in the past three or four weeks, and. And actually, if you'd have talked to me a month ago, I was still somewhat skeptical. But uh, my skepticism over the past two or three years has been slowly replaced with optimism. And right now, my skepticism is, is very, very low because it, the reports just keep coming in daily. And, and it's not just from one person in one state. I mean, it's across the entire South, basically, from Oklahoma, Texas, Alabama, Florida, Georgia. Those states have been dealing with EHD for the past two months. Yeah, well, we're just now starting to see it in the Midwest, and uh, I'm telling you, we got a game changer here. I think um, we're going to know a whole lot more, uh, you know, later in the fall after the EHD season's over. Uh, everyone that's uh, every captive deer breeder that's feeding the product now is going to be surveyed, uh, you know, to see exactly uh, how many deer they did lose to EHD when they started feeding the product and when these deer died in relation to you know how many days after they started feeding and things. But uh, we, we, it's it's just looking fantastic at the moment. Huh. I mean, it, it's it's certainly interesting, and I mean, I, I obviously by no means, and with all due respect, um, but just given the fact I don't know a whole lot about it, this is by no means an endorsement in any way. But it's interesting to hear about because mm -hmm. I know so many of us are concerned about EHD, and if if you know if what you guys are studying this summer continues to so, show such positive results i think that is very exciting for everyone um now here's a question i don't know if i don't know if this is something you can answer yet or not um but if this was applied to a wild deer herd you know as an average deer hunter having a property i can hunt and i'm concerned about ehd and if it turns out that the studies continue to show that this does seem to have an impact do you have any idea of what kind of scale I need to have as far as or how long like how long do, would I need to be feeding this to the deer what type of scale I mean does this need to be I mean am I dumping out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of this or I don't know are those questions you can answer yet or are, are we still kind of figuring things out well the, the real challenge is going to be I think at this point I personally am convinced that it works. Now, to what degree it works, I don't know. I don't know if we can we save 50% of the deer that would otherwise die. Can we save 90% of the deer that would otherwise die to BHD? I don't know what the percentage is, but I am absolutely convinced we can save deer. The challenge is going to be, like you mentioned, with the wild deer, that uh, you know they've got to consume the product, 
and, and we really don't have the answer as to how much they need to consume and how often they need to consume it because the test we're seeing this year is kind of, or this summer in the captive herds, has just kind of blown our thoughts out of the water. You know, we thought that they were going to need to be on it for 30 to 45 days ahead of EHD season to load up their systems, but we're not seeing that in the captive deer. I mean, guys are, are losing deer to EHD, and they're, they're starting to hurt on it, and the death losses are, are stopping a whole lot quicker than what we expected. So, I mean, there's a whole lot more unknowns than knowns, but the one thing we do know is that it's working to some degree. Huh. Well, so, ha- have you guys done an official test where you put a deer with CWD tested EHD, positive? EHD. Oh, yeah, excuse me. Yep, EHD. Excuse me. A deer with EHD isolated him, put that, put the the mineral in the pen with him, and then fed him a certain amount of days, and then he was cured the next, like however many days later. Well, I don't think we're ready to say we've done that, but we've got okay. reports uh, from some of these guys that are, you know, have the captive herds that uh, the deer are absolutely coming down with EHD and absolutely not going off feed, not anything, and pulling out of it within a matter of two or three days. Okay. I mean, if guys that are saying, you know, if I would have seen that last year in my deer pen, I would have known 100% that I was going to be burying that deer the next day. The next day I'm going out there and I can't tell that the deer was sick except for some drooling, you know, out of its mouth and stuff. And within three days, you, you can't even tell that deer was ever sick. It never stopped eating or anything. And again, I, I'm just sharing some stories and right. I, I don't want anybody to take this as I'm saying this is what's going to happen. There's a whole lot that we don't know, but but I can tell you that it's working to some degree. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that I think it's I think it's it's interesting, and I think to your point, there's a lot of unknowns still. But uh, count me as intrigued. Mm-hmm. Count me as intrigued. So I, I would love to follow, yeah. c- continue to follow the reports and and what results you guys get back. And um, I think you know as your tests start to come through and and more is better understood, I think it's uh, it's gonna be something very interesting. So so keep us posted on that, Don. And I appreciate you sharing some of these kind of early results and thoughts on it so far. I know a lot of people will be interested to hear about this and and hopeful that there is something that's going to be you know proven to be super helpful in, in the future. So I got my fingers crossed for you. Yeah, well, we're absolutely going to put out the test results. Uh, you know. I don't know how long it's going to take to get all the surveys in and, you know, when EHD season is going to end, but we're hoping by the end of the year we're going to be able to put out a report that says in 2017 this product was fed to, you know, X number of captive deer in X number of states and in X number of herds, X number of animals were lost to EHD, um, and then share some of the anecdotal stories from the various captive deer farmers that, that fed it. Um, you know, I, I never would have believed that I would have heard the stories that I've heard in the last two or three weeks. I, I would just blown it off because I'm telling you at the beginning, I was as skeptical as anyone. And I understand people's skepticism. I mean, I've heard it. There's not a, hardly a day goes by that I don't get an email or something on Facebook from somebody saying, no way, it's snake oil, this and that. I understand that 100%. Uh, because I, it just seems too good to be true, but right now it, it certainly appears that's the way it's uh, headed. Hmm. Well, so is is this treated treated like an antibiotic, where they they 
you know, get it in their system, and it cr- creates a uh, an immunity to to that, or is it does it kill it? Well, we're not one hundred percent sure. It's not an antibiotic; it's all natural, so there's no FDA uh, regulations or anything. Uh, anybody can buy it. Anybody can feed it. Uh, at least it, on, in states where it's legal, um, it can be fed in mineral or in feed. Uh, we're even looking at some other options uh, of how to to get it into the deer, but yeah, again, there's just so many unknowns that uh, I, I hate making statements because I don't want to be held to them later if, if something proves out different. But you know, I can just tell you it's working to some degree. And and then and then there was that the University of Minnesota test that did show that it did kill. Certain ingredients in the product did kill the virus in the lab, correct? Is that That's true, right? Yeah, and that's correct. And, you know, it was developed to, basically to, to work in three ways. First of all, it, to repel the midgenat, to keep the deer from getting it in the first place. And that's not always possible, but if you can prevent some of the deer from ever getting the virus, uh, then you don't have to worry about treating it or curing it or whatever. And then uh, it enhances the immune system to the point that uh, you know the deer is able to fight it off, and there's there's also uh, products in there that help with heat dissipation, so that the animal you know they they get EHD, they fever real bad. That's why they die in the water. They they get such a high fever, they go lay in the water to cool off. And that's where they end up dying. And there's there's properties in the in this product that'll help with heat dissipation to keep the animal cool. And you know we're not sure to be honest, you know which one of these modes of action is the most uh, effective but all we know is it's working hmm. well i'm interested and uh let's let's definitely check in down the line and uh we'll definitely be interested in some updates on what you do see throughout the rest of the summer and hopefully hopefully there'll be some good news for deer herds across the country i certainly would like to know of a solution so that said though don um ehd is kind of a downer I think for most of us, <laughs> nobody wants to hear yeah. about EHD, um, but most people, right. most people do want to hear about really big bucks, especially 200 inches. So, uh, you 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 say you've got two potential 200 inches uh, on the radar this year. Is that right? Yeah, I do. Uh, and both bucks I have a long history with. One of them is seven and a half this year, and the other one's six and a half. Uh, and, but they're two totally different animals. One of them, if they're both alive October 1 when season opens, my odds of killing one of them are about are over probably over 90%. Wow. My odds of killing the other one are probably less than 5%. Um, just one of them is a, a real homebody. He's got a small core area where he lives. It's on a property that only I am allowed to hunt. Uh, he's visible uh, quite regular. I've seen him three times in the past month uh, and really haven't spent a lot of time looking for him. Uh, I get his trail camera pictures pretty regular. Uh, he's where he's at. He, he's living where he's been since he was two and a half years old and doesn't travel far. A lot of daylight movement out of that buck. Last year I passed him five times as a five and a half year old. Got video footage of all those. Um, and, you know, he, he's actually the biggest buck I ever let walk last year. I thought he would probably score in the low 180s wow. uh, when I was passing <laughs> him. But then this spring I found his sheds, and he actually scored right at 190. 
Holy smokes. Um, <laughs> and Oof. the only it, I don't want anybody to think that, that I'm passing 190 inch bucks. If this would have been an older buck, um, you know, I still felt this buck could get bigger, which he did this year. But he was also living on a property that only I can hunt, and, and I knew he was a homebody, not ranging far. And that's why I let him go. If that buck would have been on another property, he'd got shot for sure. So I kind of need to throw those disclaimers in there to not mislead anyone to think I'm passing up 190 inch deer all the time because that just isn't the case. Yeah. Uh, the other buck, and I call that buck the first buck Smokey, by the way, and then the second buck is Trump. And some people have followed my Facebook uh, blog post uh, about Trump. Yeah, I remember him I last year. I haven't written one this summer. Yep. Well, last year I was getting his, his pictures. They were always at night, but I would get them pretty regular. Now, this summer he's he's still there. I've got two or three. I think it was three times I've got his photo of three different uh, days. But they were always at a distance. He was never close to the camera. And he's become real camera shy this summer. Uh, the The site where i was getting his his photo about once a week or twice a week last year i've not got a single picture of him there this year uh, but he's you know just across the field I, I, that's where i've got his picture three times so i know he's in the same area uh last year i figured he was probably about 180 and low 180s buck and i know he's put on more points this year i i've been able to count from the three pictures that uh, i've got of him i've been able to count at least 18 points um long times not as wide as smoky but uh real long times um he very well could be pushing 200 inches too but like i said he's going to be a very very tough buck to get if if i kill that buck it's going to be 90 percent luck 10 percent skill so so, so okay just hope i got luck on my side yeah if you could pick which deer would you rather kill this year Oh, I guess Trump because uh, he's going to be so difficult and Smokey. I think could survive another year where he's at. So, wow. Uh, but Smokey right now is probably two hundred and ten inches. And what's so, his? Uh, what's the two hundred and ten inches? Is that just a massive typical frame, or does he have some non-typical junk, or what's what's his look? He, he's a five by five uh, typical frame. He's got fork G2s, really deep forks on both G2s, and one of his brows has a little split on it. So he's got 13 points in all, but, uh, you know, his sheds last year, he had four times over 12 inches. His longest time was 14, and his, I gave him a 23-inch inside spread. Uh, and, and if you want, I can send you a video clip that maybe you could post on your site with his blog of yeah. me passing him last year, and he looked... He looks every bit that big when he comes by, too, but uh, he's just a big frame, pretty much typical with them four G2s. Uh, it's a giant old buck, one I've been waiting a long time to find. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Dan, Dan, what would you do if a 190-class buck walked by you and I told you you couldn't shoot him? <laughs> uh, I'd <laughs> kick your ass out of the tree stand and shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> so... So, okay, here's kind of what I wanted to do. And, Dan, you're going to have to help me think about how we can ask these questions and everything. But I kind of want to, like, walk you through a hypothetical season, Don. So I'm going to, like, say, okay, let's say it's this time frame. What are you thinking about? What are you doing? And then I'm going to say, okay, what if he survives that and he makes it to the next part of the season? What are you thinking about? What are you doing? I kind of want to walk you through a hypothetical year, 
hunting these two bucks and I'm just trying to understand like how your strategies would change, you know, what the plan is you currently have in place, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of my idea for this. Um, okay. so, so I guess to start though, um, can you lay out what your summer or what your off season scouting has been like for these two deer? Um, you know, whether it be in the summer or in the postseason, or, you know, what have you done up to this point this year to prepare for this hunt? That's what I want to know about first. Well, I spent a lot of time in the spring uh, looking for shed antlers from both bucks, and I found both sheds from Smokey, but I didn't find either from Trump. And it just kind of fits with their personalities. One's been very difficult, one's been very easy. Um, and especially in Trump's area, this spring I spent a lot of time uh, gain, trying to gain access. He covers a, a wide uh you know, home range. Uh, last fall, I got his picture, two pictures, 17 hours apart, three miles apart. So in, so in 17 hours, he, he'd travel at least three miles. So I spent a lot of time in that range uh, just trying to pick up a little piece. And it's, it's open farm country pretty much uh, with just little woodlots here and there, fence rows here and there. Just looking at every possible option and setting new stands. And, and he's pretty much proven to me that i'm going to have to throw him something that he's not used to the only two daylight pictures i got of him were in both of them were in mid-january and both of them were in the middle of the day i think one was like 12 15 you know right afternoon and the other one was like 1 30 in the afternoon those are the only two daylight pictures i got of him, but they were both from the same location uh i did put a tree stand at that location uh, obviously but uh i've been looking at it just uh I'm going to have to throw him a curveball. I'm going to have to do something weird. And I, I believe he's probably already aware of every stand I've got in his range. So I'm, I've put up some new stands that uh, I'm just going to stay out of and away from until the time's right and slip in and try to hunt him there. Is that buck Is that buck then not living on is, – is his core area not your farm and he just kind of comes right. there every once in a while? Yeah, his core area is, is not my farm. It's not a place I have exclusive permission for. He's as real world as it gets. Yeah, tough, tough to hunt a buck like that. So you, you've hung a couple right. new stand. Did when you do? I guess what am I trying to say? Do you do any serious like on the ground postseason scouting, like trying to better understand how deer are using these properties, where they might be bedded, where they might be traveling through, or do you already have such a good solid understanding of these spots um, based on history and based on kind of habitat, you know, improvements maybe you're making? Um, what's that look like for you? Well, Smokey, where he lives, I know his area like the back of my hand, and he does what buck has ever done that's been on that property he's staying in the same spot he's bedding i mean exactly the same place and just every mature buck that, that lives on that property over the years has done the same thing so that's why i'm so confident in killing him and just you know the fact that he don't leave trump on the other hand he's led me into new new areas uh, that i've never hunted before so uh you know, when I found him last summer, I, I knew he dispersed from that area in the fall because I had his trail camera picture since 2012, and and I would quit getting his picture of about the first week of October. So I knew about the first week of October when the crops were coming out, he was moving somewhere, but I didn't know where. So most of last season, you know, I spent moving trail cameras trying to figure out his home range. 
and, and as I found him, you know, he was leading me into new areas I'd never hunted before, which meant that I had to get permission from new landowners and and just uh, basically was starting from scratch with him. But it's going to be a real challenge to even even lay eyes on that buck. Yeah. Okay, so let's take a quick break here before we go any further for a word from our partners at Whitetail Properties. And and today's producer, Spencer Newharth, has got a guest for our segment here today who's going to talk with us about a very different hunting situation than what we've been discussing so far. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Blake Farah, a land specialist out of Texas. And Blake is going to be telling us about what whitetail hunters should know before planning a Texas hunt. You know, I think the uh, probably one of the biggest misconception, I guess, about hunting in Texas is that they've seen one or two hunts on TV and they assume that's the entire state of Texas. And I would tell you that, uh, you know, one of the great one of the greatest things about hunting in Texas is the the massive amount of diversity that you have depending on your geographical location in the state. So you can have any different experience as far as whitetail hunting goes all across the state. It kind of functions as four or five separate states entirely, according to habitat, location, topography, terrain, uh, you know, all of those things that you would kind of classify the Midwest or, you know, even farther out West doing some elk hunts or something like that. And Texas has such a big diversity of things that you can really find really whatever experience you're looking for and just driving two or three hours in any given direction, you can have completely different types of hunting. I'd say the main regions of Texas can kind of break down into what everybody knows as South Texas. It's kind of South of San Antonio, characterized by the classic South Texas brush country. Big, wide, tall whitetails, very mature. You can have great age structure because the ranches are huge. You've also got kind of the panhandle where it's more of the kind of the Kansas-Oklahoma strain of whitetail, a little bit more of the river break country, big draws, big cuts, wide open country. You've also got West Texas with huge canyons, um, a lot more of the spot and stalk type country out there. And then you've also got East Texas where you've got huge timber and you've got large timber stands and you could actually have and grow some crops and have some tillable and, uh, you know, just a huge diversity across the state. If you'd like to learn more or to see the properties that Blake currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Farah. That's F-A-R-R. A R. Okay, so you've got you've got some solid intel, basically multiple years of both of these bucks. Uh, I guess I'm wondering <laughs> as I'm thinking this through. Let's 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 talk one buck at a time. Let's start with Smokey. Okay. So Smokey, again, you know his habits very well in this area. You've he's a homebody. He's been there for a long time. You've passed him. Um, okay, let's say it's the early season. October 1st, opening day in Illinois, or that first part of the season at least. Walk us through what you are and are not going to be doing at that time of year. Are you going to be hunting them at that time of year? If so, can you tell us where, how, how often, um, all that kind of stuff, just at that point in the season. Let's say he's alive. Yeah, I've got two places, two stands, where I feel I've got a really good shot at him. And I don't think it matters what time of the season it is. Um, what I'm going to do is hunt those two stands when the wind's right, and uh, I'm going to pay a lot of attention to weather fronts. Um, you know, when the deer movement would be pick, picked up from normal, uh, and if, the, if we got the, the right weather front and uh, the right wind direction, I'm going to be in one of the two stands, and I honestly think I'll have it killed before the end of October. 
um, just because of my past history with the other bucks in the area that have done the same thing. I mean, he's doing the same thing that I've watched other bucks do in, in the same location. And I would not be a bit surprised if I don't shoot him the first hunt. But, you know, maybe not. It might take a couple of weeks. But I think by the end of October, if he's still alive, BHD don't get him, I'll have that buck on the ground. And I, I, I'm, I normally don't go out on a limb like that and make that kind of prediction, but just based on what I know about this buck and what I know about the property where he's at, I think I can get him killed. Can you describe the property, like the situation? Like you mentioned that every mature buck on this place does the same thing. Um, can you describe, you know, so what is he doing? Where, What's the area he's bedded in? How is he moving out of there? Like what's the pattern you seem to have on this deer already? Well, there's a, uh, there's two different kinds of cover that come together. The ideal spot where I think this buck is going to get shot, you've got wooded cover that, that meets with with uh, tall prairie grass, and then you got a food plot. And it's like all three of them come together. And he likes to bed in that tall prairie grass, so there's there's like a funnel between the prairie grass and the wooded cover, and right where that funnel's at is also the corner of the food plot. And it's just a killer location where you could kill every buck on the property at that, that spot. And, you know, since I'm the only one allowed to be there, I've got pretty much control over it. And I just, uh, I stay away. I make sure the deer are comfortable using that. And he's already proven that he's he's fine with moving in the daylight. I, I've seen him three evenings. So I think I went out to look for him four different evenings and three of the evenings I've seen him. So, you know, he's visible. Um he's not near as nocturnal as Smokey is and the, the stand setup is, is just killer can you elaborate a little bit on the stand setup again uh, you know not only just the specific location but also I mean is this like a is this a box blind is this a hang on that's 25 feet in the air I'm curious about like all the specific details of what's making this so good it, it's actually a box blind an elevated blind there that, that covers that funnel between the the tall prairie grass and the wooded cover and also when when the deer come out if, if they're bedded in either one either the, the wooded cover or the, the tall grass they're going to come out into this food plot and th- this corner of the food plot or end of the food plot that's covered by this box blind is just like the natural hub of, of deer coming from you know just about every direction but yet it's still I've got a fantastic access into that box blind with a west or northwest wind and that that wind allows me to slip in undetected but it's also blowing my scent into a direction that there's almost never going to be deer so even though they're coming from both sides of me they're hardly ever behind me so they're coming from extremely rare so they're coming from your north or south and you're accessing from the east is that exactly exactly yep Okay. And what's what about the access route? Is it just the fact that it's, you know, just an area most deer aren't bedded, or are you sneaking in through a ditch, or do you have some kind of, like, screening cover or some, like, special thing you've put together to, to improve your access there? It's across a wide-open ag field, and kind of the roll of the land, the terrain features, pretty much keeps me hidden until I'm right there at the barn. Okay. Excellent. I uh, I mean, a deer would literally have to be standing on the edge of that cover looking out to, to see me coming into that barn. Hmm. You mentioned you're waiting for the right wind and then the right weather front. 
Um, I can make assumptions mm-hmm. about the weather front you're looking for, but can you tell me exactly what that what those conditions are you'd be waiting for? Well, a cool front in October. You know, uh, those October cold fronts are, are absolutely fantastic to get those bucks on their feet, you know, a little bit earlier than they would on other days. Um, and also those cold fronts usually, uh, the northwest wind or the west wind that I need is not typical here that time of year. They're more south-southwest, which is absolutely wrong for this stand. So the cold front usually gives me the wind I need as well as the conditions for the deer to be on its feet. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a good situation to have. Now what about mm-hmm. what, what about Trump? Will you hunt him at all in the early season? And if so, what's what's the plan for that? Or if you're not going to hunt him in the early season, are you going to be monitoring him at all or in some way keeping track of what's going on there? Yeah, I I've dedicated so many trail cameras to that buck, it's ridiculous. I think half my trail cameras are trying to catch him and put together the pieces of the puzzle. And, you know, by the way, whenever, you know, last summer he caught my, my eye, and so I, I went back, to, I, I used Reconic software to keep track of all my trail camera pictures. So I started looking back through previous years, you know, like, what buck is this? You know, he exploded last year. Well, then I looked through all my my trail cameras from that same location from the previous year and I picked him out and then I went back the the previous year. Well, and once I've got his, once I know what he looked like the year before, then I can look at all my other trail camera locations and look for, for him again and see, you know, which one of those locations he was at. Well, to make a long story short, I had his picture since 2012 as I put the pieces together, but the problem was I only had him at that one location. He wasn't visiting any other property where I was hunting or had cameras. So, you know, last year I was I was putting the pieces of the puzzle together. So the, the thing I noticed as I was going through these old photos is that, you know, he, where he ranges in the summer, he, he leaves in early October, but, he, but he's there the first week, 10 days or so uh, of October. So I figure I've got a chance there. Uh, the first week and a half or so of October. So the days the wind is not right to be hunting Smoky, I've got multiple stands at this location where I can hunt Trump. So, you know, I'll be hunting Trump hard, but then when the, the time comes that I probably should still be hunting him, I'm going to slip over and try to slip an arrow in Smoky at another location. <laughs> a tough balancing act. Well, yeah, but it's what I live for, so. Yeah. So are you uh, dead? Like I said, I, I shot my, I shot a 214 inch buck back in 2004, and I've spent the last 13 years looking for another one. I want to do it on video the next time. And I spent 13 years, uh, and I don't know how many miles, uh, trail cameras, probably uh, hundreds of thousands of trail camera pictures, just searching for another 200 inch buck. And I found a couple of 190s, and there was. One I was hunting a couple of years ago, and I just got onto the buck, and he was killed about a week later, and he scored like 199 and some eights at the Illinois Deer Classic that uh, winter. Wow. But I found a couple on the 190s that got killed before I really had a chance to hunt them hard. But this year, I've definitely got at least one. So, are you de- are you dedicating your season to these two deer? I mean, is it is it tag soup or 200? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, there there may be another buck coming that I don't know about now. 
that I might uh, that might change my mind. But if you're asking me that question today, I would say yeah. There's no other buck that I've got a photo of that I would uh, put my tag on. And now, then, I am gonna I am trying to get a tag in Iowa. So when I go to Iowa, if I get a a a tag in Iowa, I applied for one of the media tags. I was unsuccessful in the first in the drawing, so I applied for a media tag, which the deadline for that was today. So I'll be finding out pretty quick if I'm heading to Iowa. I've got a pretty hot tip for a good property over there, and uh, is it so uh, that might factor into things a little as well? But is it is it Dan Johnson's place? Because I think you should hunt there. <laughs> I don't got any. Yeah, I'm gonna tell him though. One of his neighbors <laughs> gave me permission to park and, and walk across the line. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, so, what does what does the number two hundred mean for you? What is it? What is a two hundred inch buck? By killing one or both of these this year, what do, what does two hundred inch mean? Well, for me, you know, way back when I shot the first one, I, I just wanted to kill a world class buck, and I but I wanted to do it, you know, on certain terms. I. I didn't want to shoot one on a deer drive. He's running by with his tongue hanging out or anything like that. I just wanted to shoot a, a world-class buck as he's going about his business, not having any idea that I was anywhere around, uh, doing what big bucks do when they think nobody's looking. And I was fortunate enough to do that. And as time's gone, gone on, you know, I realized how rare that was. And I knew it was the buck of a lifetime when I shot him, but as time's gone on and I, and I look across to the hunting industry, some great hunters, some fantastic hunters and, and how many of them have killed multiple 200s and there's, there's not very many, and especially when you start talking legit 200s. I mean, there's guys claiming that they have that if they was ever, their bucks were ever submitted for official scoring, they wouldn't be 200. And then, but there's guys that have, you know, uh, you mentioned Mark Drury earlier. He, he has, uh, Adam Hayes has, there, yeah. there's guys that have, and I just, I would like to kill at least one more to put myself in that uh, elite group of company of guys that have killed multiple 200s. It's, uh, like you said, rare company, no doubt about that. Yep. And, um, and, and, and I can only, I've not shot anything close to that big, but I could assume that, I mean, when I think about why do I like to target older deer or, you know, when we talk about antlers, sometimes I mean, antlers aren't everything, obviously. There's a lot of other things more important. Mm-hmm. But we are naturally, I think, a lot of hunters fascinated by them. And I think it's just, I think when you talk about these bigger deer, because of how rare they are, there's something special there. It's not because, oh, these antlers are so big, they're going to look great on my wall. But there's also just the fact that 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 type of animal is such a rare, special animal out there. So few like that. Mm-hmm. It is the ultimate challenge. It is, it is that ultimate kind of, I don't know, measuring stick for you as a hunter. I feel like oftentimes, at least for me, like I'm not competing against other hunters to kill bigger deer or anything. I'm competing against myself, and like just trying to become a better hunter every year. And looking mm-hmm. at antlers and score, that's one way to quantify you know, how, how great of a challenge it was to try to find a deer like that, to be able to learn that specific rare deer. Um, I mean, I, I got to believe some of that stuff is similar to what you're feeling too. Is that right? Yeah. And you know, I mentioned the guys that have killed 200 inch deer. There's a lot of fantastic deer hunters. I mean, top notch deer hunters that have never killed one, not, not a single one. And that doesn't make them any less of a deer hunter or, or mean they know less than a guy that has it. 
you hit on the you hit it on the, the nail on the head when you said how rare they are. Smokey, for example, even though he's got a rack over two hundred inches, he's no smarter than a lot of the three year old bucks, really, or four year old bucks that I've had the privilege of hunting over the years. And in fact, killing him is going to be relatively easy compared to some of the other bucks that I've hunted. And, and I've hunted a lot of bucks that, you know, didn't score 150 inches that, that I never got, that got away from me. So the 200 inch doesn't prove that you're a better hunter. It's just, it's, it's just a very rare animal. And, and that's the difficult thing is finding a 200 inch buck, not killing them. Just finding a 200 inch buck is what's rare. Yeah. Yeah. So, so back to Trump, um, you mentioned you've got like a week or so window there where he seems to be active on that property. And you said you've got several stand locations that you'll hunt him when the wind's not right for Smokey. Can you describe what those mm-hmm. setups would be? The early season setup for first Trump would be what one or several of those look like? Yeah, they're basically just a uh, little pockets of cover out in the middle of wide open ag fields. And, uh, you know, if somebody would see the stand, they would think, well, that guy's got to be nuts. Who the heck would sit here and think they're going to shoot a deer? And, uh, but that's where he lives. That's where he spends his summer. And until most of the crops are out, he stays out in those kind of areas. Um, and so I just basically went, went to every area in that, uh, in his home range, in that three mile stretch where I know he ranges the two extremes where I've got his picture from one end to the other. And any little pocket of cover where I thought this would hide a buck, this would hide a buck, uh, that I thought I could uh, slip in and get a stand and, and be able to climb in that stand without busting any buck that's bedded there, I put a stand there. And there's going to be a lot, a lot of days that I hunt for Trump that I don't see a single deer. That is a tricky situation. Now, I, I know what you mean, too, yeah. some of those spots. Um, I've got some friends that hunt kind of areas like that in northern Ohio. There's huge open ag fields and these tiny little blocks of timber in the middle of them. And the challenge always seems to be like just even getting in there without spooking the deer to hunt them. Um, are you gonna are, are these stands that you're accessing through standing corn or something, or I mean, is it just because they're big enough yep. pockets that you can get in there without spooking him? How do you manage that to get in there without spooking him if he's in there? Yeah, it's going to be standing corn, and I'm going to need the days where it's fairly windy, where the wind will cover my noise as I slip in. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so so I want to move on to, like, mid to late October now. We're going to, we're going to pretend that you haven't killed either one of these bucks yet. But before, I guess, Dan, any early season questions for his plan before we move on, I guess? So this last year was kind of warm. Uh, we had a warm early season with like one cold front that came through. Uh, and obviously the, the bucks don't start getting on their feet. Their movement is more dictated, you know, daylight movement is more dictated towards, uh, the movement of, I'm talking on the law of averages. Their movement is based on whether or not the does start, you know, coming into heat and are ready to breed. Um, and I guess it's kind of leading up to the next question that is, you know, if we have a warm, uh, a warm early season, a warm October with, you know, maybe no, uh, no, uh, cold fronts that come through, are you still going to go and hunt some of these properties or are you going to lay, like do a lot of laying off to, and just 
you know, even if that cold front doesn't come to the first week in November? Well, with, with Trump, I've got enough stands out that I'm going to be hunting him somewhere. With Smokey early, I'm going to, if the wind's right, I'm going to be hunting him out of basically two locations. Um, and both of them are very similar. They just take different wind directions. Um, but uh, as we get closer to the rut, then, uh, you know, I'm going to be, again, I'm going to have uh, probably 12, 15 trail cameras dedicated just to Trump. Uh, if I don't get him this year, maybe I can put a couple more pieces of the puzzle together and be a step closer for next year. Uh, but with Smokey, I've got a lot of different stands in his area that are more rut-type stands. Um, so, you know, I've probably got, uh, just off the top of my head, probably eight or ten other stands that uh, once November starts rolling around, that I'll, I'll start hitting some of those other stands that are right there close to his his bed and have a real good chance to kill him. So so would you say then, just to, just to make sure I understand, if you don't get the cold fronts in the early season like you want, you'll you'll keep hunting Trump regardless, but you'd lay off Smokey on those spots until either the rut or you do get the cold front. Is that accurate? Yeah, and if if I just get the wind, uh, the other stand that I've got Smokey, I described the first one. The, the second spot is also another elevated blind. Uh but it, it requires a southeast wind, um, and, that, and that's one that I could probably get. It's the stand site is it's not quite as good as the first one, but it's still a, a location where I've got a legitimate shot at him, and I'll hunt it, you know, a time or two, um, even if the weather's hot, because it's a it's a spot where I can observe a lot of the property as well, and you know maybe pick up on something he's doing that that wasn't expected, but. Okay. Now, I, I'm I can make an assumption here, but let's say let's look at the the opposite of that situation. Let's say early October passes and you did get cold fronts. You had several good cold fronts come through. You went to those couple stands for Smoky with the good conditions, with the good wind, but you didn't get a shot at him. Maybe you saw him, maybe you didn't, but you weren't able to kill him. Now it's you know later in October. Let's say. October twentieth to the thirty first, somewhere in that time frame, the last third of the of the month. You mentioned you've got some other rut stands. Um, you've got a lot of different spots for Trump. Um, when it comes to Smokey, if it's late October, you still haven't killed him. What's the specific strategy there? Are you still hunting those same early season stands because you're working off of that kind of bed to feed pattern still, or or what? Yeah, I will, but I'll move into some of those other stands as well. Um, what would those look like? Yeah, it's it's, yeah, it's it's hard to say. Most of those are like right on the edge of bedding cover, and I'll be hunting the downwind edge of doe bedding areas. Uh, but sometimes, you know, the, these bucks will move into those doe bedding areas too uh, during the rut or right before the rut, and start bedding there as well. So, right. you know, as the season wears on we get closer to the rut if i haven't got him yet yeah, i'll start hitting some of these other stands on the edge of bedding areas and hitting that bed to feed pattern uh, okay primarily in the afternoons i just i don't hunt mornings in october and in fact i don't hunt mornings for the first couple 
until about November 5th is when I really start hunting mornings. And the reason for it is I don't want to burn myself out. Uh, you start getting up early 30 days in a row, and, and I don't care who you are, you start getting burned out. And I, and I want to go as long as I can with hunting every single morning, so I don't want to start too early. I usually start about November 5th, and from that point on, I'm hunting every single morning. And uh, especially when you get there towards the end of, of November, around Thanksgiving weekend, that's a fantastic time for killing big bucks. Um the thing about Smokey is, is I, if I get him, I almost feel like it's going to be a midday type deal, just based on the trail camera pictures I've gotten. Uh-huh. I think that he knows the game as well as I do, and probably a whole lot better. Um, that just based on my trail camera pictures, I never got a single trail camera picture of him at dawn or dusk. The two I got was midday or or middle of the night. So I think I'm going to have to spend all day in stands. Uh, for him, Trump. I, if I don't have Trump by the end of October, I'm going to be checking my trail cameras about daily because I'm going to think something's happened to him <laughs> if I haven't laid eyes on him. Speaking of trail cameras, um, I know in one of our past uh, episodes with you, you talked about you know the importance of annual patterns that you're analyzing through trail camera uh-huh. photos. How much of that is going to? Yep. How much of that factors into these two bucks too? Because it sounds like you've you've had observations of, of Smokey. It's been more trail cameras with Trump. How much of an annual pattern from a trail camera kind of study standpoint is going to factor into all this? Well, a lot. The, on Smokey, you know, he, he's not changing. He, he's one of those bucks that just lives in the same area all year round. And as you know, I've ran these trail cameras for years and years on multiple properties, and what I see is about. 50% of the bucks will have a summer range and a fall winter range and, and they'll shift. It may only be a, they may only shift their range a mile or so, but, but they do shift a little bit. And the other 50% pretty much stay at the same spot year round. And, and that, that range when they stay, it varies in size. And Smokey just happens to be one of those bucks that stays, stays in the same area year round, but it's a very small area, which makes him pretty easy. Trump, on the other hand, you know, I'm looking at trail camera pictures hard now. Where he was at last year on a certain date, this year I'm going to be there on that day. Even if I got his picture at night, i got to assume that uh, I'm still, you know, fairly close. But, you know, I mentioned those. uh, I got several pictures of him during the rut, uh, the same spot where I got his daylight pictures in, in January. Uh, but he was coming through at night every time. I'm going to be spending time. I know he spends time in the rut there, and I know there's several does that, that stay in that area. So uh, I, I've got pictures of him working scrapes. Last year he broke a time, so I, I assume he was fighting uh, to do that. Um, so I assume he's taking part in the rut. So during the rut, I'm going to be spending a lot of time in that area uh, where he was in the rut last year. You know, a, a hot doe can change the game in in, in 30 seconds. You can be having the worst season of your life, and here comes a hot doe, and that buck that was 100% nocturnal up to that point, all of a sudden he's on his feet in daylight, and you got to be there if you want to capitalize. So yeah, that, my, my my hopes are that I kill Smokey right out of the gate, leaves me one buck tag, and I can just focus solely on Trump and not have to worry, should I be over there hunting Smokey, because I know i got a better chance to kill him. I it'd be kind of that's going to be kind of frustrating it may happen that way but 
you know, if I've only got one tag and one buck, I can focus 100% of my energy on that, and uh, it'll make it a little bit easier. Yeah. Now, when you're hunting, you know, one specific buck on either of these two areas, um, how aggressive or not would you get with things like calls or decoys or rattling, you know, because those sometimes can be kind of a high-risk, high-reward type proposition. So since you've got such a tight home body with Smokey, is that something where you would, you'd rather not risk spooking him in any way and just know that he's going to hopefully stick close to home in those during those time frames and you can kill him eventually? Or would you get aggressive with some type of calling or something like that? I, I probably won't get aggressive with him at all. Uh, I, I want him just to go about his business like he has all along. Um you know, I'm sure he's he smelled my you know ground odor many times as as he's walked through his area, and I've been there. You know, get stands ready or planting food plots or whatever. Uh, I, I don't want to do anything to put him on high alert. He I, he knows that, that I'm part of the, the landscape there, really. Um, and I think that's that's something that I've really not heard a lot of guys talk about. But I believe the deer on on this property know my odor over others because I've just seen, you know, both those and the mature bucks, not so much, but younger bucks for sure. And, and even like three, three and four year olds got video footage of them getting downwind of me and sticking their nose in there. They definitely smell me and they don't bolt. They just turn around and walk back into cover. And it's, uh, and I just got to believe that they know my odor versus other people's odors. It's kind of like the farmer that's no threat to him. You know, they smell him day after day after day. And, you know, he's out taking care of his crops and his cows and whatever. And they're always coming across his odor and he's never doing anything to endanger him. So they just kind of become accustomed to it. And I think that's kind of the situation with Smokey. I think he knows I'm there and he just doesn't feel threatened by me. Uh, kind of conditioned to human intrusion. Exactly, and, and uh, you know I've got the wooded cover on this property, and as well as the, the taller grasses or sanctuary areas. I don't stomp into them, but on the outside edge, my scent's there all the time. I mean, the, the deer just seem to accept that, and even the bucks. Now that doesn't mean they're going to walk across open country or anything. Throw caution to the wind; they're still a cautious animal, but. Uh, some of them are a whole lot more cautious than others. Now, Trump, on the other hand, I, I probably I'm going to get one good hunt out of each stand, and if I don't get him, it's going to be over because I that that's one sharp buck. I, if I kill Trump, it's probably going to be the greatest accomplishment of my hunting career, no matter what scores. Wow. Well, it's time for our final break of the episode, and this time it's for our partners at the Whitetail Institute of North America. And with fall food plot planting season upon us, we are hearing today about some of the best food plot forage options the Whitetail Institute has to offer for this fall. This week with Whitetail Institute, we're talking to consultant John Cooner about their special blend of Imperial Whitetail Fusion, which is super popular with deer and even more popular with hunters based on the product's outstanding reviews. Fusion is sort of an unusual product for us because it's in part uh, one of our oldest products that we have kept updating, and in part because we have ended up changing it so much that we ended up changing the name by continuing to improve it. Uh, the main parts are still the same. There's Imperial uh, Whitetail Clover is the main uh, forage component, 
Dr. Dr. Hannah, our plant geneticist, finished breeding uh, our newest clover variety a, a couple of years ago, and so that has been added added to uh, to fusion in place of the clover we'd had uh, before that. Also, we've increased the amount of the chicory that we put in there. Uh, the protein level is a little bit higher uh, than it was. It goes up to 44%. The product we had before was called Chicory Plus. And with all those changes and the fact that, that we found Chicory Plus fusing uh, because it led folks to believe it was more chicory than clover, we said we might as well go ahead. It's, it's time to change the name now because we've made those other uh, continuing improvements to it. Imperial Whitetail Clover is number one food plot planting in the world. It's made for a good uh, moisture-holding bottomland soil, uh, and it's just, it, it is our number one flagship product. And to that, there's been a small amount, say 10%, maybe a little more of the chicory uh, infusion, and uh, that brings the, the total protein uh, provided up to about 44%. If you'd like more info on Whitetail Institute's forage products, check out whitetailinstitute.com, where they also carry some of the top supplements, attractants, and herbicides available. Yeah, e- either way, I uh, either buck would be pretty incredible, but I can I can definitely see why the challenge is there. Um, now, Dan, on the rut side, what else do you want to know about Don's rut thoughts, plans, strategies there? Well, I mean, it sounds like, you know, I, his goal is to get the job done before, correct me if I'm wrong, wrong, but your job is to get the job done before the rut hits, right? Um, smoky for sure. Yeah. Smoky for sure. Okay. Um, and, and because th- that seems to be a, uh, you're the only person that has the access to hunt that, right? There's food plots. He doesn't, other than maybe chasing a doe, he doesn't have any other reason to leave, right? Right. Yep. Okay. Um, so then what happens when the rut hit? Let's say, for example, the the rut hits, chaos ensues, and A, they stop showing up on trail camera. B, uh, maybe you see him, but he's on a different property or he's chasing a doe outside of your plan. Well, I should probably back up a little bit. You know, I, I mentioned that uh, Trump shifts his home range in early October uh, from his summer range to his fall and winter range. I, I'm not going to, unless I've killed Smokey, I'm not going to be going after Trump hard like the second half, once the October lull starts, say so the second half of October till the 1st of November, I'm going to lay off of him because uh, I, I just don't have enough stands to hunt and I don't want to burn them out before the rut. So if I don't have Smokey killed by, say, October 15th, middle October, the second half of October, I'm going to be going after him hard day after every day just to try to get him killed before the rut hits because I don't want to take that chance on him hooking up with a hot doe and going to another property and getting shot. He's just, uh, I mean, I've waited too long to hunt a buck like that to not go after him hard. And I'll probably do that right up into early October or early November until I get him killed or, or something happens to him. Okay. Even if it means leaving Trump alone. I mean, I will early the first 10 days or so when I know Trump's on his summer range, yeah, I'm going to hunt both bucks. But once I feel Trump has made that shift to his fall winter range, 
I'm going to lay off of him till the rut and go after Smokey hard until I get him on the ground or, or something else happens to him. Now, what about um, – we talked about trail cameras from an annual pattern standpoint, but you did also mention the fact that if, if Trump – if Trump is still alive or you think he's alive and we're later in October, you said you, you'd be checking your trail cameras often to try to figure out where he's at now. I mean, what's your trail camera strategy right. in season going to look like? Um, are you moving? Are you going to keep these cameras in the same places that you always do? Are those like easy to access spots or would you get aggressive with your cameras and move around and keep looking for them or keep trying to narrow things down? Well, I'm not going to be moving cameras. I'll, instead of doing that, I'm just going to take however many cameras I need and uh and leave them in the spot all season uh some of them are going to be in more difficult to access spots and they won't get checked near as often maybe they're close to a, a tree stand and i don't want to put any pressure on that stand so the only time that i check those cameras is when i'm going in to hunt that stand and then there's going to be some that uh you know they're more more open type areas where i'd only expect to get nighttime pictures and I'll check those more often just to, to kind of get a handle, make sure he's still alive, make sure he's still using the same patterns he has in years past. Okay. Here's something I'm wondering about. In this situation, let's say on both of these bucks, you still haven't killed them in the early season or in October or into the rut. It's not, You kind of alluded to this with Trump, but at any point do you start worrying about the amount of pressure that you're putting on them like let's, let's talk about smoky because this is the situation where you said you would be hitting it hard in october because you want to kill him before the rut but let's uh-huh. say you hit it hard all through october you still haven't killed him um, but you know he's maybe still in the area at any point do you say i put so much pressure on this deer i need to I, i'm just making it worse i need to pull out and leave it alone for a few weeks and then hope maybe that'll give him daylight active again i mean how how many hunts can you get away with in that area without having some kind of impact? Well, where he's at, like I said, I probably got to at least 10 stands. So, I mean, there, it might be a situation where two or three stands, I feel I put too much pressure on those and, and I back away from those two or three, but that doesn't mean I'm going to back away from the other, you know, seven or eight that's left. Um, for example, in in Smokey's area, I've got uh, three stands that require an easterly wind. We don't get many easterly winds, but I'm telling you, we get an easterly wind in, in early November. I can sit there and, and see six, eight bucks every hunt. Wow. And whenever, if we get an easterly wind in early November, I know exactly where I'm going to be. I just can't believe that that buck's going to going to live into into november to be honest <laughs> i hope he doesn't now i'm gonna i'm gonna this is blasphemy and i i'm sorry to say this um but let's say you still haven't killed Smokey or trump in october or in november during the rough phases and we've made it all the way to the late season i know you're going to be a little bit uh-huh. bummed i know you're gonna be a little bit down at this point if that's the case but what's the late season strategy for these two deer if they still are alive but you have not killed them yet. Well, if uh, if I don't kill them and I know they're still alive, that's that's great. I mean, it's actually a little bit disheartening to go out and shoot your target buck on the first day, and uh, it's, the fun is kind of the chess game. And the longer you get to play, the better it is, as far as I'm concerned. So I wouldn't mind at all shooting either one of them bucks on the last day of season. But 
if if they make it to the late season, my odds of killing Trump are about zero. That um, in his home area, there's no food plots. Uh, by that time, I'll probably have burned out every stand in his area. Uh, if, I, if Trump makes it to the late season, his odds of making it to next year are very very good. Uh, Smokey, on the other hand, you know I've got uh, food plots on that property he's on. Um, some of the best video footage I got passing last year. You know, I didn't pass it. I passed him five times, but the first time was, I think, November 16th. So I didn't even see that buck. Not that I was trying, but I didn't even see him until November 16th from Stan. And then I ended up passing five times, but some of the best footage was late season. Uh, most of the, the passes were, I, and I think that was, there was twice in, in November, and the other three times were in December and January. Um, and I seen him other times. He was just out of range, and I didn't count that. But uh, you know, he'll be on those food sources um, as long as I keep plugging away and keep watching the wind on every hunt. There'll still be a chance. So similar, similar strategy then to what you had in the early season, right? Hunting some of those food-related right. stands again, waiting for the right conditions. Yep. And and right, if I remember correctly, you don't hunt moorings in December either, and you're very particular about the days you go in, right? Right. Okay. You you want those cold fronts again? Uh, the colder the weather, the better. It gets those mature bucks on their feet before dark, and it's afternoon. Um, if if I had one, if I could only pick one time of the year to hunt, it'd be the late season and afternoons. Yeah. And uh, you can take the most nocturnal buck there is. Now, if I had if I had a property in in uh, Trump's area where I could plant a food plot. I would really be looking forward to the late season because that's one time when you can get a nocturnal buck like Trump on his feet. If you get temperatures down around zero, that buck's going to be on his feet looking for food before the sun sets. And, uh, you know, I even, ironically, I tried to, to lease a small property in Trump's area just for the purpose of planting a food plot, and I, uh, the landowner wouldn't go for it, but uh, that's how much I believe in the late season. And that I, I think I would have doubled my odds of killing Trump if I could have had a small food plot in his region or his range. Yeah, the power of food. How much do you yeah. think that the the harvest of ag fields in the surrounding area is going to affect any of these deer? Uh, well, for with Trump, for for sure, you know he's a he's an open farm country buck. He covers a lot of a lot of area, and it, it's most of it's open. Uh, if the crops are still standing, I mean, it's definitely going to be to his favor. Uh, the ideal situation is if most of the crops got harvested, and there's like one or two cornfields that weren't in the range. Uh, but I know where I'd be keying on then uh, the downwind edge of those cornfields. Gotcha. So, let's think about this. If you get to the end of this season and you have not killed either of these two bucks, what would you say would be the biggest reason for that? Like, if you had to explain, hypothetically, you're looking back on the season and I said, you didn't kill Smokey or Trump, what do you think, what what happened? Why would you say that? Or Or what happened there? If you had a hypothetical guess what the reason would be or what the challenge would have been or, or whatever could possibly go wrong, what would you think it might be? 
Well, there's no doubt. The, the only thing that's going to stop me from killing Smokey is if, if he dies another way. If some other hunter gets him or EHD gets him or something like that, uh, that's the only way I won't kill him. Because if he's alive, I'll get a shot at him. There's just no doubt. Now, Trump, on the other hand, I will. it's the total opposite. I will be shocked if I do get a shot at him. Right. So I won't be a bit surprised if the season ends and I don't have him. Yeah. Uh, do you think... You, you killed your last 200 in 2004, I think you said, right? And now you've said for 13 yep. years, you've been dreaming of this. You've been trying to find another 200-inch buck. You've been working towards this, this very rare animal. You finally found one. How do you think you're going to handle that moment? Are you concerned at all about that moment of truth? I know you've killed a lot of big, mature bucks. Like, this is second nature to you now. But when you have this, this next chance at a 200-inch buck, do you anticipate it's going to be just going about your business? Or do you think... This is going to be a little bit different. It's definitely going to be different. Uh, I thought long. I've been waiting for this moment for 13 years, and I've played it in my mind a thousand times. And when I shoot that buck, even if I watch that buck fall, I'm going to slip out, and I'm going to call my dad, and I'm going to have my dad walk up to find him. And I want my dad to be the first one to, to grab his antlers. That's cool. Yeah, you know, my dad wasn't a deer hunter, but whenever I was a kid, I was just crazy about the outdoors. And he always took time from his job. He would save vacation days from his job just to take me deer hunting. And he never really taught me anything about deer hunting. He didn't talk, teach me about scrapes or rubs or anything like that. But what he did teach me was that whatever we was going to do, we was going to do it right. And there's a story I tell that you know, back whenever I was a kid, it was hard to get a, a gun tag in Illinois to shoot deer because they were very limited back then. And, you know, you would put in a drawing in the spring, and then in the summer you'd find out if you got a tag that year. Well, I went to school, and, you know, I was talking to some of my buddies at school that also hunted deer, and this one kid told me, you know, that him and his dad, they put in applications for everybody in the family, the mom, the sisters, everybody, and they always had a tag to use every season because somebody in the family got a tag. And I came home that night at supper and, and told my dad that I said, no, I got a great idea. I know how we can definitely give deer tags for sure this year. We'll just put in applications for mom and little brother and everybody, and somebody will get a tag, and we can go deer hunt. <laughs> and my dad led into me and let me know that uh, if I didn't want to play by the rules, we, I wasn't going to be deer hunting at all. And I'm so grateful to have a father that, that taught me that how we did things was more important than the end result. And, uh, you know, if I've just been blessed in the hunting industry to have so many doors open to me as an outdoor writer and such. Um, and I attribute it all to my dad teaching me that we're going to do things right. And when I shoot that next 200, I'm calling him, and I'm not going to let him know how big the buck is or anything. He has no idea right now I'm about to shoot a 200, or I think I'm going to shoot a 200 this year. But I'm just going to call him up and tell him that uh, I need his help getting the deer out. And he'll always, he's always there for me. He'll be there within minutes. And I'm just going to, even if I see the deer fall, I'm, I'm not walking up to it. I'm letting him walk up to it first, letting him be the first one to grab it by the rack. That'll be a special moment, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Now this is kind of related to the the story you just shared there. Uh, 
but maybe you can elaborate or maybe there's something else but so the the opposite of okay. my other my other question that, that that first question was if you didn't kill those bucks what was what was the reason why you weren't able to kill them now on the flip side let's say you do kill these two bucks and you're sitting at the end of the season and you're looking back on that other than just the the tactical side of things so other than the fact that you know Smoky is on that property really strong. You've got lots of great habitat. And other than, you know, you have an annual pattern on Trump. Let's say other than the tactical things, is there anything intangible that you would look back on and say, yeah, it's because of X or Y. That was really the key to me killing those bucks. Maybe it's something like persistence or patience or your, 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 I don't know. Is there anything like that that you would say is probably going to be your key to the success that you hopefully have? Well, if I kill, like I said, if I kill Trump, it'll be a whole lot of luck, but it's really a passion. And I know a lot of guys that are going to be listening to this podcast are going to understand the passion. Um, there's a lot of us very passionate. I think that uh, I've probably taken the passion to a level that most deer hunters aren't going to understand, but there's a few that will. Um, you know, I just, unfilled tags don't bother me anymore. And they really never did. I, I'd set a goal, and it didn't matter what the goal was. It, it, I wasn't going to shoot a buck less than that. And if it took me five years to get it done, well, so be it. That, that was uh, I was just so passionate about reaching that goal that, that I wasn't about to, to lower the bar. I, I would do whatever it, take, it, it takes to reach that goal. And then I would leave the, the bar there until I would could consistently do it. And then I would raise it again, and I wouldn't lower it again. I would just keep plugging away until I got good enough to to do that and I think it's my willingness to to accept empty seasons I I don't feel like I need to shoot a buck every year Um, I want to uh, but I've got no desire to shoot uh, bucks below my goal and uh, you know I just find satisfaction in being out there anymore The, the drive to kill is I guess as strong as ever but it's different it's I I can it doesn't cost me sleep if I don't. In other words, I mean, I'm fine with with an empty season. So, you know, I just go for broke. Yeah. I think something you said there is, is worth reiterating um, because I feel like this whole discussion we've had with you, it's not really, you know, how to kill a 200-inch buck or how Don Higgins is going to kill a 200-inch deer. It's really about how to achieve a goal. It's about how you can reach your own personal goal. You, your personal goal for you, Don Higgins, is you would like to kill a 200-inch deer. But, you know, this everything we've talked about is just as applicable if your goal is to kill your first four-year-old buck. You know, I mean, it's all about setting what the right goal is for you and your situation and your circumstances and, and what's going to make you happy and feel fulfilled. Um, and, you know, I think it's important, and you mentioned this earlier, right? The inches the inches don't really matter. For you personally, like, it's it's a great way to, 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 to achieve something that's rare and to challenge yourself. But, you know, it's all about setting personal goals and, and working towards those and, and growing as a hunter and having that experience. And I think having those goals is a really great way to force you to grow, to force you to, to confront a challenge and learn how to overcome it, become better because of it. Um, but I don't know. That's, I guess, my my thoughts on this as, as we're kind of wrapping this up as I'm, I'm thinking about all these things. I don't want anyone listening to think like, ah, well, I need to be shooting 175-inch buck or a 
200 inch buck to be a great hunter or something like that or because don's able to pass on 190 inch deer i should be able to do that too i mean we're all in a different boat we all have different things um but there's something really powerful i think about setting a tough goal for yourself and working for it um i think positive things come from that all the time um i don't know uh, am i ranting or does you're, that make sense you're absolutely right yeah you're absolutely right mark absolutely i you know, people think that because, you know, I've got a lofty goals as far as deer hunting that I look down on people who maybe shoot 130-inch deer, whatever. And that's absolutely not the case at all. I'm, I turn 54 years old tomorrow. And in that time, you know, I've had goals that were, you know, I started out any deer, a doe. I was going to shoot it. And it's taken, you know, all this time. I started hunting when I was 13. So, you know, I've got over 40 years in the deer woods now. And all I did to get to this point, and, and by the way, I never dreamed that I would let a 150-inch buck walk, let alone a 190. So, you know, reality, I tell people also that uh, dream big because God's reality is so much bigger than you can ever imagine. Um, but when you set your goal, just don't compromise your goal. It, it might take you years to achieve it, but don't compromise. If you compromise it, then you never reach your goal. So... You know, just, just set the bar at a certain level and keep plugging away until you're able to consistently reach that. Th- don't raise the bar the first time you reach it. You know, if, you, if your goal's a 130-inch buck and you shoot one and it's your first 130, well, don't raise the bar to 140 next year. Shoot a few 130s and, and get really comfortable at shooting that size box and then raise the bar. And, and uh, once you achieve the next level, you know, do that a few times before you raise the bar. But... But accept that there's going to be some empty seasons along the way. I mean, anything worthwhile doesn't come easy. So you just, you know, stick with your goals and keep plugging away. Yeah. What are your thoughts on all this, Dan? Because I know you you personally have had, you know, some some tough goals for yourself. And some years you you've ate tag soup. Some years you've, you know, you've adjusted goals. Like last year, you decided to. to try to shoot a four-year-old. I mean, where's your head at on this whole topic now? As you've, you've gone through some different things over the years. I mean, I was obsessed with a buck for several years and I learned a lot from that deer. I don't know if I necessarily would do it again to go after a specific buck um, at at this point in my life because uh, although going after that uh, that 200 incher uh, when I went after him and I, I almost you know, I almost accomplished my goal. You know, I, I learned a lot, but I, I passed a lot of deer that I should have probably shot to get comfortable with that moment of truth because I was so focused on this other particular buck. So I, I was passing, you know, 140s and 150 class deer uh, that I probably should have shot in those years. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I don't want I don't want to ever get in a position where you know and 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 my circumstances are different than other people's circumstances. So what I say is what I want to do and what Don's saying is what he wants to do. But I'm never going to I'm never going to let um anything outside of the love of hunting dictate what animals I'm going to shoot. Mhm. Right on. Yeah, I think I think it, it. And you know, some people are. 
some people are fine with shooting the first deer that comes along. Well, that, that's their business. That's not my, that's not my right. business to tell them, you know, you ought to be shooting the bigger bucks or whatever. Uh, you got to do what makes you happy. We're all individuals, and we got different hunting areas and, and different amounts of time to devote to it and different family obligations and job obligations. What works for me may not work for the next guy and probably won't. Yeah. So it's just, you know, I have no other hobbies. I haven't fished in over 25 years. I've never turkey hunted in my life. For me, it's all whitetail. That, that's what I live for. Uh, there's no other hobby. So, obviously, at my age, after doing it for so long, your goals are going to be a little higher than the average person. But yeah. that doesn't make me any better than the other guy. God didn't make me any better than the next guy. It's just made me different. Yeah. Yeah. I do I do have a question for you, though. And I don't want this to come off as, as rude, um, but a 200-inch deer for anybody, you know, especially someone in the hunting industry can elevate their career. Um, what do you think would happen to your career if you were to, you know, if you were able to harvest one or both of these animals this year? Oh, that's a tough question. That's the toughest one I've had yet today. <laughs> I'm not sure really. Uh, you know, I've seen my uh, consulting business uh, really start to grow here in the last couple of years. And I think it would probably, uh, uh, accelerate that just a little bit. Um, as far as writing, I, right now I'm writing about as many articles as I want to. I'm not one of those guys that wants to put out two or three articles a month or a dozen or whatever. If, if I could write one or two a month, you know, maybe 15, 18 articles a year, I'd be happy with that. And that's what I'm doing. So I don't think it's gonna, you know, change anything there uh it might help draw a little bit of attention to real world and help that business grow a little bit uh i plan on getting these hunts on video so and i'm you know not affiliated at this time with any web show or tv show or anything like that so it might open a, a door uh, that way but i don't know i know it's not going to change me as a person i'm going to be the same guy next year as i am you know today uh, still passionately chasing whitetail, still looking for the biggest one I can find, and uh, always being a student. You know, I I'm no expert. I just uh, I've got a lot of years being a student, so right. I'll just continue down that path. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, okay. Here's an, this makes me wonder: what happens if you kill both of these bucks? You kill two 200-inch bucks in the same year. You've now killed three 200-inch bucks. Do, do you have the 200 inch buck bug out of your system? Will you be like, okay, you know what? I'm just gonna I'm gonna stick to my you know old mature bucks, but I'm not gonna be so obsessed with trying to find this next 200. Or is it all right? What's the next rung up the ladder? Now I want to kill a 210, or wanna I don't know. Do you, is there a next step after this if you were to achieve these goals? Yeah, boy, you guys saved the hard questions for last. <laughs> uh, I that. You know, I think I will probably always, you know, if I kill two, then I'm going to want three. If I kill three, I'm going to want four. It's not, I, I don't know. Until you're there, it's hard to say. I want two because very few bow hunters have killed two legitimate 200s. And, uh, but after that, you know, does the third one make it any better? Or does the third one prove anything? Uh, the older I get, you know, the, the less I hunt for 
any other reason than, than my own self-satisfaction. Um, it's not about opening doors in the hunting industry or anything like that. Uh, there is one point in my life where that, that probably was a factor in, uh, you know, trying to shoot the biggest buck I could find to sell more articles or get a sponsorship from another company. But that that's no longer the case. I'm certain of, um, I don't know, you know, what kind of doors it might open for. Maybe it'll, it'll allow me to gain people's ear a little bit better and, and, uh, you know, promote things I, I believe in. Um, I think there's been, been some celebrities or, or hunters that had the, uh, the public's attention that, uh, I wish they would have had a little different message. Uh, I'm not going to beat my chest and say, look at me. I shot three 200s. I'd just as soon use any attention to, uh, for something good, you know, maybe ethical hunting practices or, or, or who knows. Uh, you know, I've spoken at a lot of churches. Um, I'm a Christian and I, I believe in, uh, using whatever means possible to promote that. So maybe, maybe it'll open doors there. Yeah. Um, you know, who knows? Yeah. Uh, something you just mentioned there, um, and I think I, I really like your mindset on all of that. Um, but something you mentioned when it comes to promoting um, some, you know, the the ethics of hunting and doing things the right way. You talked about that earlier. Your dad's influence on you about do, going things, going through things the right way, doing things the right way. Um, mm-hmm. I think that'd be a perfect place for us to leave leave things off here on the podcast. Do you have any final words for our audience as far as the importance of ethics or how we go about what we do as hunters? Anything you've learned on that front that you want to share or any reminders that would be good for us to hear here to, to end this conversation? Yeah, you know, when I first started doing seminars, I would always end with the same, I would start the seminar with the same slide as I, and I would end it with the same slide, and it was a picture of my first buck. And on the, the final slide, we would go right back to that picture of my, me with my first buck, and I would ask everybody in the audience to take a look at that picture and, and ask themselves, what do you see when you see this picture? Do you see some lucky kid with his first buck? Or do you see, you know, this picture, you got to remember, is from the 1970s, and I'd say, do you, do you see some kid wearing a funny hat, or, or what do you see when you see this picture? And I'd, I'd wait a few seconds and give the audience time to gather their thoughts and and I would say, no matter what you see in this picture, you'll never see what I see. Because when I look at that picture, I see my dad. And my dad's not in the picture at all. But my dad made it possible. And everything that I've, I've done in the hunting industry, I, I attribute to my dad because he taught me to do things right. So my final message, I guess, for this podcast would be, you know, a lot of us hunters are, are mentors or to younger hunters, whether it be our sons or, or whatever. And, and I've seen over the years, observing other hunters, that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. If uh, a young hunter, you know, if I'm in a seminar or a, a trade show or something and a young hunter comes up to me and I talk to that kid for five minutes, I can tell you what kind of uh, hunter his mentor was, whether it be his father, grandfather, whoever. If that guy with a whack on stack him, if it's brown, it's down, gangbanger type hunter that kid's going to reflect those same values but if that kid was taught to hunt by someone with high ethical and moral values that that child is going to reflect the same thing so you know i just hope this season is as 
fellow deer hunters take out these young kids, whether it be their own kids or others, to the woods, to just remember you're setting an example, and that young child you take to the woods is going to end up just like you. So, so set the right example and let them know, you know, that there's a right way and a wrong way to do things, and make sure they always see you doing the right things because the example you set can can live long past you. I guarantee you, when my dad was taking vacation days from his job. 40 years ago to take me to the deer woods he had no idea what it was going to lead to and uh you know the kid you take to the woods you don't have any idea what that kid's going to be 25 years down the line but that's a perfect opportunity for you to teach him so many lessons that are way more valuable than anything you could teach him about deer hunting yeah i think that is a terrific way to cap this conversation off so Thank you, Don, so much for for sharing all of this and, and talking through this whole hypothetical season and, and indulging our questions. Um, I, I hope yeah. it was a helpful exercise for our listeners. I think kind of getting your mindset, it was definitely helpful for me to see how you would think through all these things. So we appreciate it, Don. And if people want to learn more about the products you talked about earlier today or if they want to follow along with, with what's happening for you throughout the season, is there anywhere online they can they can find that stuff? Yeah, the, they can find information on the uh, EHD product at realworldwildlifeproducts.com or they can uh, follow me on Facebook, Don Higgins slash Higgins Outdoors um, or my website, HigginsOutdoors.com. But, uh, yeah, I appreciate uh, you guys having me on again. I, it's probably, this podcast is probably different than anyone you've ever done, but uh and we covered some interesting things, and, and I just want to thank you guys for uh, you know the example you guys set uh, for others in the industry, young hunters. I'm sure look up to you guys as well, and, and I appreciate what you do. Well, thank you so much for saying that, Don. Absolutely, right back at you, and uh, and finally, I think most importantly, good luck this season. You've got uh, quite the season ahead of you, and we've got all of our fingers and toes crossed for you. Well, thank you, and I'll keep you posted. Sounds good. And that will do it. Another episode is in the books, and here's what I've got to ask you for before we go. First, if you haven't yet, I've said this a million times, so you might be sick of hearing me say this, but a rating or review on iTunes would be amazing. It is it is a huge help, and we've already had over 700 of you leave a review, and I appreciate that so much. But every week, let's be honest, there, there's tens of thousands of you downloading these episodes. So I know there's a lot more of you folks who haven't done a review yet. So no pressure, but you know, yeah, help a brother out. <laughs> also hit us up over at wiredtohunt.com and the Wired to Hunt social media platforms to stay up to date on everything else we've got going on. Um, you know, with my upcoming Alaska, Montana, and North Dakota hunts, there's gonna be a lot of cool stuff I'll be putting out there. And that will be shared over on the website and Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. That said, we'll wrap things up here with a big thank you to our partners at Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, of course, thank you all for listening. Thank you for your attention and your support. It is just so greatly appreciated. Until next time, stay wired to hunt.